This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. In today's rapidly changing culture, ancient liturgical tradition is not only biblical, it's essential. In Crisis of Confidence, Carl Truman analyzes how creeds and confessions can help the Christian church navigate modern concerns, particularly around the fraught issue of identity. He contends that statements of faith promote humility, moral structure, and a godly view of personhood, helping believers maintain a strong foundation amid a culture in crisis. Pick up a copy of Crisis of Confidence wherever books are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a talk by Brian Chapel on the pilgrim's purpose in life. This message was originally given at TGC's 2021 National Conference. Now, Hebrews 12. I'll ask that you look there. And to prepare you for what is there, a letter from friends in Uganda. Pray for us. As we navigate all the rules and regulations of the present pandemic, a few days ago the police were shooting live bullets to shut down shops in Kampala. The same day, police were beating taxi drivers and their passengers for violating the rules concerning city transport. All mass transit is shut down. All flights out of Uganda are closed. The borders are closed. Salt has tripled in price. Sugar is rising. If prices keep going up, there will certainly be civil unrest. No schools. No church meetings. Like everyone in America, we are uncertain and worried, so we pray and ask you to pray for us, to trust in the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. We are thankful that although we do not have live-streamed worship services, we do have access to the heavenly worship service that Hebrews 12 speaks of. Well, what is that? That heavenly worship service that can sustain us through trial and persecution and pandemic, that the writer of Hebrews sends as a message to those early Christians whose pilgrimage through a persecuted world needs 
encouragement and sustenance because they have already faced so much so that they will be prepared. He speaks to them of not just the former worship of their Jewish past, but of a greater worship that is theirs for the present and the future, as we have in this conference talked about the greater Jesus. Now the writer of Hebrews turns to that greater worship for its effects on our pilgrim journey. He begins by saying what is familiar to so many of us who love Hebrews 12, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those men and women of faith who despite their faults and foes in the preceding chapter, place their faith in an eternal God. And since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, verses 1 and 2, lay aside every encumbrance, every weight and sin that would keep you from being so used because your trials do not mean that God has abandoned you or His purposes. We are to perceive our trials not as abandonment, but as discipline. And then verses 3 through 11, remembering that God disciplines those that He loves to produce a greater harvest of peace and righteousness. And in light of that purpose of God, we receive a great charge, as did the ancient people. It is a charge that their pilgrimage of holiness on earth would be pursued, verses 12 through 17, with, with a bracing reality that would no less keep them from pursuing God's task. Verse 12, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. But how? He points their eyes forward, saying it's not by the worship that was revealed and tempest and fire in ancient times on Mount Sinai. That's not where you've come now. But where, verse 22, read with me, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I'll stop there for now. Keep your Bibles open. We'll cover more of the chapter. The words that should challenge us are these, if God is for us, why is all this happening to us? They are words from that cloud of witnesses, from Gideon, who was so bold as to speak to an angel after the enemies of God had pressed the people of God from the fertile valleys of Israel up into the hills, and they didn't know if they would have food or a future. And the angel came to give charge to Gideon, and he said, if God is for us, why is all this happening to us? 
Yeah, I know. In Sunday school, we learned about the Red Sea passage and the redemption of our forefathers and the plan of God. But now there's not food, and we have enemies that we cannot overcome, and our children are afraid. And if God is for us, why is this happening to us? And it's not just an ancient question. Two weeks ago in our home, I think of the, of the woman whose husband had abandoned her after decades of marriage. And as she was moving out of the home in which she had lived with him and raised their children in In moving the furniture out of that place of security, she fell on the stairs, shattering bones, and said to my wife, honestly, but guiltily, why did God want this? It's the ancient question. If God is for us, why this? And it's not just people of old, and it's not just ordinary people in the church. It's, it's what God's leaders ask again. If it is true what Barna says, that because of the pandemic, one in five of our churches will close by the end of all this. If two in five pastors are actually so tired of a third of the church upset with them, no matter what they decide about masks and nurseries and whether to speak about race or politics. And those who are most at risk, according to the researchers, are those who are most pastoral, who feel so deeply. If God is for us, why this? I mean, we gave up career and security in order to start this church, in order to build this building. And just as we were getting started, this, if God is for us, why this? And if we cannot honestly ask the question, it is because we know what the true subtext of the question is. It is not just, if God is for us, why this? It is, maybe we ought to consider something or someone else. And knowing that reality that is in the human heart, the writer of Hebrews addresses it by saying, oh, yeah, well, like like whom else? Like a God who would reveal himself in earthly power, a God of smoke and fire and tempest who shakes mountains and drowns enemies. Now, there's a God you can get behind. I mean, he's probably at the end of some yellow brick road, behind some heavenly curtain, pulling levers, and that wonder of a God, as long as you do what he wants, will do as you please. Except the writer of Hebrews reminds God's people, remember what happened in your wilderness pilgrimage 
when God revealed himself to you in that way. When God reached out and touched you, what actually happened? When you could touch him, you would not hear him. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. When God showed you the power and the purity of who he was, you were like that other prophet of old who saw and heard from the fiery seraphim the heavenly song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. And all he could do is say, woe is me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen this God. And all he could really desire in that moment was distance. And we understand the reason, because what the writer of Hebrews says to these people is, when you could hear him, you could not endure him. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. So, pure and carterizing the effect of a holy God upon the people of God, that even if an animal would touch the mountain, it was to be destroyed. And they got some sense of the end of this chapter. Our God is a consuming fire. And all the people of God could do in that reality made plain to their senses was beg for distance. Because when you could really sense him, you could only fear him. Verse 21, indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The very thing that was to strengthen their needs and to brace them for the battles ahead instead turned their knees to water. And they feared and trembled. What we have here is a a warning made fresh by the writer of Hebrews, the warning of the idolatry of our senses. The belief that what we can touch and hear and explain to our senses should be the measure of our God. But if your God can simply be captured and calibrated by your senses, then you're basically shaping your God by your own explanations and timing and understanding. But what happens when your God cannot be touched, nor fit your time frame, nor work according to your explanations? Then inevitably the God that you are perceiving seems small or distant or just mean. When our senses and explanations are the measure of God, faith will fail. We are not the first generation to need a God greater than our senses. In the 17th century, the war of religions known as that 30 years war claimed 8 million people for their religious causes in Europe. That was one in every five people in Europe killed. A Lutheran pastor said, 
Of the thousand members of his church prior to the war, only a third were alive by the end of the war. In the English Civil War, 250,000 died struggling for religious freedom. And the proportion of population to our time compared to there, that would be the equivalent of 23 million Americans dying for a religious civil war. As the Reformation was warming up, the Black Plague killed 25 million, a third of the continent. In London, 2,000 bodies a night being dumped into the plague pits. We wrestle with government standards that strike us as at times overreach to maintain our health, but no overreach is as great as that of Charles II, who ejected thousands of ministers from the churches of our forefathers for the sake of his own rule. Or the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where the King of France murdered 30,000 Protestant reformers in one night. If God is for us, why this? If all we're doing is measuring by our senses, we will make no sense of it. How God was extricating the church and a culture from a control of a medieval church, from the enslaving feudalism and decadence of European monarchies and sending pilgrims to Holland and Switzerland and to the Americas. For in its maturity, the greatest mission, movement of the Spirit in the history of the world of which we are still the great-great-grandchildren. No senses could have anticipated it. No explanations could have made sense of it. But God was working then. And what if he is doing it again? We wring our hands at the pandemic. But for decades, we have been decrying Christian nominalism and the erosion of values and the emptying of our churches. But what if there is a refining purpose of God for the pilgrims of this day? What could it possibly be? When our church had to make all those hard decisions about when we were to meet and how often to meet, we like churches set up our social media page for comments and there was a man who was taking me to task for our decisions. And so I asked to meet with him, prepared to give as good as I had gotten. He came into my office, and his first words were defensive. I didn't do anything wrong. So I said, listen, look at your post, and look at the ones surrounding it, and you tell me if your terms and your tone is like the others. And he just glanced at the screen, and then he began to cry. He said, you don't understand. This is my family. And when we cannot meet as a family, I'm not sure that I can make it. And I had to think of what I knew about this 
awkward man and his struggling marriage and his difficult children and his no-end job and, and weep for him. How desperate. He knew he was for the church and he did not know it before. Acting out in all the wrong ways, but his heart being revealed for his longing for the church of God and the ministry of the Savior among us. What if he is just one of thousands upon thousands upon thousands? I saw my mother at Easter time for the first time in a year, and I watched a 90-year-old grasp her children and her grandchildren in near desperation to rejoice in, in being together again. What if what God is doing for us is preparing for that next great movement of the cross by teaching us how dear we are to each other and how dear the Savior is to us? I spent some time on Zoom recently with church leaders from China and Hong Kong and Taiwan. And if you're paying attention to the news, you know the pressures of the Chinese government on Christians throughout China is making many think that mass persecutions and imprisonment are just around the corner. That what has happened to the early reign covenant church is only emblematic of what is to come. And the pressures on Hong Kong and, and the flyovers of Taiwan, even of planes with nuclear capacity, are making us believe that war may just be inevitable. But what else is happening? As people's fear turns them into desperation, to the need of one another and the need of a Savior, we, we listen to our own reports of 300% increase from that part of the world for resources from the Gospel Coalition being used. In an amazingly, amazingly short time period, the number of people identifying as Christians in Taiwan doubling. What is happening? Michael O, oh, the head of the Lausanne Comedy on World Evangelization, said this is a time of our immobility. But God is on the move. And there is an acceleration of opportunity. Billy Graham's long-term association, Leighton Ford, joined the call to say, the pandemic is a time of global pruning. God is taking away the excess and the chaff to focus the world on the vitality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, John 15 tells us the vine dresser only prunes to produce more fruit. Does everyone understand that? Of course not. Do all Christians understand that? No, no. But we will not understand if we cannot fathom a God who, who is not measured by our senses, for they only register the plagues and the persecution and the injustice and the racism and the refugees pressing on our borders and the government encroachments that are sure to get worse. But instead, we begin to say, is God turning us to show himself not on a mountain of tempest and fire, but a mountain that cannot be shaken, a mountain that is established for a people in an eternity where his heart is revealed for what it truly is and for the people who will always be his.
We are not returning to Mount Sinai. No turning back there. We are marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God we sing. But what is there? A God who reveals his heart in heavenly purpose. It, it shows in unusual ways in a, in a party, an amazing privilege, and a wonderful pardon. The party is verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The writer of Hebrews pulls back the curtain on heaven itself, and we are to see there a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly Mount Zion, and he tells them so clearly, we're already there. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. What, what, what is that? I mean, everybody knows about Mount Sinai. I mean, that's, you know, where Charlton Heston wrote the Ten Commandments. But what is Mount Zion? It is that place where King David purchased a threshing floor to offer sacrifice to stop a plague that was caused by his own sin. A place where his son Samuel would build a temple where atonement could be made for the sins of the people. A place where the lamb prepared for sacrifice before the foundations of the world were laid would be taken to be prepared for atonement for the sins of the world. That is Mount Zion. And we are told in verse 22, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Already there. What's happening there? It's a party. Verse 22, innumerable angels in festal gathering. The angels are no more thundering threats over Mount Sinai. They are waving banners of blessing over Mount Zion, saying there is joy here because of the work of God. What is that work? It's revealed in the privileges that are spoken of here in verse 23. There is a great gathering with the angels in festal display. It's the assembly of the firstborn. And we should be objecting, wait, there can't be an assembly of the firstborn. There's only one firstborn. That is the prince of glory. That is, that is Jesus. But here is an assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. How could that possibly be? Because they are before the judge of all who should make them tremble any, again and again. But we read, in contrast, that these are the spirits of the righteous made perfect at the end of verse 23. This is the assembly of the firstborn. These are those who have the status of Jesus, robed in his righteousness, the righteous made perfect by the work of God. And it was in the plan before. 
Paul tells us, Romans 8, for those that God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That what God's establishing is a, a great rank of privilege. And rank upon rank of those who are made righteous by the work of God. It has been made possible by a pardon. Verse 24 speaks of it, but we get the thrust as we back again into verse 22 and read the sentence. You have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion. Verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn. Verse 23 at the end, to God, the judge of all. And verse 24, and you've come to Jesus. Who is he? The mediator of a new covenant. This is not a covenant that makes you tremble with fear before the holiness of God, but invites you to an angelic festival with the privileges of the firstborn who have been made righteous. How? Verse 24, by the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, you have to have a little Jewish history to understand what that's about. And you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and the first murder in the Bible, where in jealousy for the attention that God was giving to his brother, Cain slew Abel. And when he tried to hide, the Lord said to Cain, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground. The sprinkled blood of the body of Abel resulted in a curse. But the blood sprinkled beneath the body of Jesus hung on a cross speaks blessing. And the angels are celebrating that blood and that blessing. In festal display in the new Jerusalem, they wave their banners saying, pardoned, forgiven, beloved of God, and they are laughing in joy. And so pastors who suffer the indignity and the shame of failures have over them a banner that says, pardoned. And parents embarrassed by the burdens of their children have a banner over them that says, loved. And spouses who are ashamed of the fractures in their marriages are labeled, made perfect by the mercy of God. And faith leaders who have neglected faith commitments are called the beloved of God in row upon row before the throne of God. And in amazing blessing, verse 22 begins by saying, and you have already come there. You have come to Mount Zion. It is not just future. It is so certain by the accomplishments of the work of the Savior claimed by the grace that is already in our hearts that you are already there. I love a good country song. And none much better than Lone Star's I'm Already There. He called her from a lonely, cold hotel room. 
just to hear her say, I love you, one more time. But when he heard the sound of the kids laughing in the background, a little voice came to the phone and said, Daddy, when are you coming home? He said the first thing that came to his mind, I'm already there. I'm the sunshine in your hair. I'm the whisper in the wind. I'm in your prayers. I'm already there. Emblematic of the Father God who speaks into our loneliness and shame and fear and says, I'm already here. He is the sunshine in our hair. He is the whisper in the wind. He is the one who hears our prayer. And when he speaks from his word to say, I love you, one more time, this Sunday or this day or this moment, despite the voices of Criticism and condemnation, the laughter that you hear is the laughter of angels in festal assembly, singing, forgiven, pardoned, beloved. And our God says to us, others may believe that long future or never to occur, but by faith you are already there. The cross evidences the realities of God in the past in our rearview mirror. But the writer of Hebrews is pointing beyond our headlights to say there is the blessing of God secure for those who put their faith in Him, and you are already there. Does it make any difference? In our part of the country, recently terrible tornadoes. And I could not help but think of that history quilt that has been bequeathed to my wife, the quilt put together decade upon decade by relatives as each creates a, a patch denoting some aspect of the family history that is key and important to them. And for a lot of the family, one of the key patches is the one that depicts the cyclone of 48, the great tornado that came through their neighborhood. My father-in-law had already been in the Battle of the Bulge. He was part of that diaper brigade. So much were troops needed for one of World War II's greatest battles that, that he was one of the young people who received only two weeks of basic training before being shipped to the front to face artillery and tanks where the ground shook and the blood flowed, and he was one of only eight from his unit who survived in proportion. But in that time before cell phones, when he got word that the tornado had gone through his parents' neighborhood, he got in his car and he drove from Washington University, he drove to his family farm area, and as he, he went through that row of trees, up the lane where the house is supposed to be, when he got through the trees, there was nothing but a hole in the ground, shredded lumber and cloth in the trees. And this man who knew what it was for the ground to shake 
was so stressed by what he saw that he began to hemorrhage from his nose and his mouth. He was overwhelming the pain and the horror of what he was looking at. But what if he had known? In that very moment, that his parents and his sisters would survive. That his career would continue and be brilliant. That his family would prosper. That his children and their children's children would love the Lord. If he had known it all in that moment of such hurt and pain and ache, if he'd known it then, what peace and power would have been his. And so the writer of Hebrews says, verse 22, you have come. By faith, this is already yours. The God who has revealed incomparable earthly power and an irrevocable heavenly party now reveals his grace by a heavenly invitation, speaking of the wonder and the magnitude of his heart for all who would seek him. There, there is a great appeal It's a personal charge in verse 25. We know it. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The God who has revealed himself in power and in compassion loves us enough to warn us. See that you do not refuse him. There there is a savior to seek from your sin. There are idols to whom you must turn away. Do not trust the things of this world. They will be consumed. Confess your sin. Turn to your Savior, and he shall receive you. And and to drive home the the point, that great appeal is backed by an even greater warning. Verse 25, midway on through 27. For if they, that is past generations did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. In the past, you you had some glimpse of the power of God. In the present, you can see the glory of his heart. Do not refuse him. Why? Verse 26, at that time in the past, in Sinai's shadow, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What is true and must be heard? The things of earth will be removed. The earth as we know it will pass away. There will be a great shaking of the revelation of the glory of God in that great day. Make no mistake, it is to occur. The God who has revealed his power shall do it again. And preparing for the reality and the glory of that day, he says to us, prepare your heart and warn loved ones. He shall shake 
the earth. Now, whether this pandemic is the beginning of the end of all things or just another in a series of warnings, I do not know and would not pretend to say. What I know for certain is that this world shall pass away and God shall be revealed and Jesus shall come in power and great glory. And the God who shook the mountains to awaken his people to himself will finally shake the earth and the heavens to call his people to himself, revealing sin and redeeming sinners. And we are to prepare for that day. If we're already secure, if, if the heavenly Jerusalem has not only been made plain, but, but we're already there by the grace and the mercy of God through faith, then how should we respond? Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Make no mistake. The consuming fire is no threat to the righteous made perfect by the mediator who has come and shed his blood. We should be so grateful. We should be so thankful. How do we express it? With acceptable worship that is marked by reverence and awe. It is not just the reverence of the trembling. It is the reverence and the gratitude that come from recognizing what the ancients said, by the mercies of God, we are not consumed. Yes, our God is a consuming fire, but he has given us escape and grace and a hope that is certain heaven for all those who name the name of Jesus and receive the righteousness that he alone can provide. It's when we claim that, that the great blessings of the gospel are ours for every day, even in times of persecution and plague. A recent article touched me more deeply than I anticipated as I considered the losses of, of our church. A pastor wrote, a friend had been fighting cancer for years, then years ago, he was declared cured. We had forgotten about the cancer. But the cancer did not forget my friend. After all those years, all those treatments, after all of our prayers, a virus came to his compromised system. So he held my hand and he smiled through an oxygen mask and he died. And I didn't know what to say. I make my living with words. More than that, I make my living knowing the right words. I'm supposed to know a lot about God and good and evil and grace and mercy and hope and glory, and I do. There are times, however, when life hits so hard and suddenly, like a wave at the beach, you find yourself gasping for air and trying to find bottom. So when as a preacher you don't know what to say, you go back 
to what you know is solid ground. You go back to the last place you can touch bottom. And my friends, on this pilgrim journey, the last place that we can touch bottom is ahead of us. It is the eternal city that cannot be shaken. The waves sweep over us. We don't have all the explanations yet, but we have already stood on the unshakable ground. It is the heavenly worship of Hebrews 12, made plain and firm. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to Mount Zion, and Jesus is there. The ground may shake, but Jesus is my rock. On that solid ground I stand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. The earth may shake. He shall not shake, nor shall I. I am on the solid rock, and so are you. We shall not be shaken. On Christ the solid rock we stand. Everything else, sinking sand. But on him we are secure. Praise God. You have already come to Mount Zion. You are all ready there on the rock that cannot be shaken. Praise God. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.